The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. I am so excited today to uh, recognize and introduce Jack Devine. Uh, I call Jack Devine the master spy. So for over 30 years, he served under six successive presidents, Nixon to Clinton, while he was with the CIA. And he's here today to talk to us about the book he just wrote, detailing his vast experiences. Uh, welcome, Jack. Welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be chatting with you again, Francie. It is a pleasure. And so, you know, Jack, tell us a little bit, I mean, I know you were with the CIA for 32 years, but tell us how you got there. You know, where were you before you were at the CIA? Well, I was teaching school in uh, suburban Philadelphia. I can't say I was very internationally oriented, even though I'd taken international relations in, uh, in college, but uh, my wife gave me a, uh, a book. It was a scandalous book about CIA and the military <laughs> intelligence complex. A scandalous complex. book. <laughs> and it was called The Invisible Government. Well, I read it and had the op- opposite reaction. I thought, well, that, wow, that sounds interesting. So I sent off a letter when we used to write with pen and ink. And next thing I know, I was in training uh, preparing for an overseas assignment in, uh, in, in Chile. And, wow. And so how old were you at that point? Uh, at that time, I was 26. 26, okay. And the now, CIA had you likes already... To hire people in the 24 to 30 range, uh, they actually like you to get out of the university and either have some military experience or life experience, uh, banking, teaching, whatever, so that you know, you're, uh, you've seen a tiny bit of the, how the world operates. Right. And so you had already been to college. I'd, I'd been to college. I'd done graduate school and... Uh, I was chairman of the social studies department in a high school that no longer exists. It was a lovely school, Sharon Hill in Delaware County. And uh-huh. packed up at that point, I think, let's see, we probably had two children at the time and moved off to Washington and uh, spent a couple of years in preparation for the overseas assignment. And what, uh, so your major, I guess, was in social studies. It was. I started out as a math major. Don't ask me why. Okay. <laughs> I I think I was good in geometry. That was that was it. And then I realized that uh, you know I frankly enjoyed uh, world events and and have haven't lost that interest. Oh wow, that's great. Now and then, so what was your career path within the CIA? CIA? 
Well, I went through the career training program, which consists of about uh, six months of learning how to be a spy, you know, how to uh, follow people, how to be followed, how to spot, assess, and develop agents, uh-huh. how to do reporting, um, uh-huh. how to make little micro dots that you put in books when they did things like that so they couldn't find it, how to take pictures, how to, they wanted to expose you to things, not because you're going to be in it, but that you will be drawing on those skills. The final three months were uh, paramilitary uh, activities. You know, every weapon under the sun, jungle training. Uh, and then they had at the end, and I mentioned this in the book, voluntary. Uh, there was two things I should mention. One was uh, demolitions. And when I went to the briefing, it's a special location because you can't be blowing up things in, in uh, northern Virginia. Uh, so... Uh, you were you would blow up telephone poles and uh, you would have a detonating cord that burns at a certain speed. And by then, I had three children. The speaker that came out had a, a V-shaped scar. It was bald over his head. He's missing. I, mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say two or three fingers. You know, his first statement was, "You know, it's uh, working with explosives very dangerous." <laughs> and I thought, "Boy, I didn't need to hear that a second time." So when I was cutting my detonating cord, I. I cut a couple extra inches off so that I make sure that I got back into a safe area while I was burning. So my my explosion would go off after everyone else's, and I, I found it. I don't want to say humorous, but I you know I, I thought it was a cute thing to do. And uh, so my file ends up saying, uh, "Whatever you do, do not let this man near explosives." And <laughs> if you fast forward in nineteen. 19- 86 and 87, I was responsible for more explosives than anybody in the history of, of uh, the CIA in the program to get the Russians out of Afghanistan. So I think the moral of the story is, you know, your training exposes you to some, some things. But I, I learned how to be cautious. Um, and they didn't have me uh, detonating any bombs in, in Afghanistan. My job was to go and negotiate to get weapons and and to get mules. I mean, I, I own more mules than anybody in the West at one point in time. And when you say get mules, what does that mean? I mean, literally. I'm, well, when you, <laughs> you mean real mules. Real, real mules. And I'm a city guy, so you, you bring a Tennessee mule and put it beside a Pakistani mule, I couldn't tell the difference. In fact, maybe if you put a horse there, I wouldn't tell the difference. Well, but know. what happened is we were shipping millions of pounds of ordnance uh, weapons, and we would buy it and uh, this is all on the public record, but we were buying it in Japan and China uh, because we were using Soviet-style weapons. You had to have the same weapons that the the Russians were using because insurgents, when you overrun a place, you want to be able to use the the uh, the, the soldiers' weapons. So we were using it. Plus, we didn't want to rub it in the Russians' face that we were supporting the Mujahideen, even though they... Uh, they knew full well. But once you buy them, then you have to get them there. So I would negotiate ships so that they could be uh, moved to Pakistan. Then they'd be put on trains. And I probably owned, when I say owned as the representative of the U.S. government, more Toyota trucks because once you got the trains, you would put them on the back of some of these very colorful Pakistani trucks, but uh, often it was a Toyota. Uh, And then when you get up far enough in, the trucks aren't of any use, and you have to go by mule. And you have to put all of that, those millions of pounds on, you know, on the back of a, uh, 
wow. of a of a mule. So where do you find them? Someone thought we should buy them in uh, Nigeria. Well, they didn't acclimate, and I think they probably came, became uh, uh, called feed for uh, feed for the uh, for the other mules. They, didn't they did they not acclimate because of the uh, altitude? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what happened? We bought them in China, and they'd have a a cattle drive or a mule drive all the way across China and into uh, northern Pakistan, where then you would start to disperse the weapons and the, and the mules. The Chinese actually gave me a quasi emerald, um, not emerald, jade mule. Of course, I had to turn it into the CIA, but. Uh, <laughs> I actually thought, what a great adventure to travel across China in this mule thing. But I thought if I went to the director of CIA and said, look, I want to take two months off to to experience this, uh, I thought he he might have thought I wasn't as dedicated as I need to be. But it was an interesting, the point that I was making, Francie, is that, you know, we think think of war, you really have to think about, you know, when you get down to the bottom level, it's really, you know, people and, and, and weapons moving and... We even had to design saddles that were special to carry the stingers. Uh, hmm. So it got into some technology that I, you know, I, I have had no experience in whatsoever. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you still have all your fingers, so you didn't detonate any bombs, and I'm. Uh, I guess I'm sad to hear that you didn't weren't able to drive a mule drive across China. But. Well, maybe maybe the CIA can organize a mule trip <laughs> across China. Of course, you have to work the golf in there, I guess. Well, there you go. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too much. So, your your experiences just have to be amazing, and I know that uh, you ultimately became. Uh, both the acting director and associate director. Is that correct? Right. What that means in layman's language, I was responsible for all of CIA's spies and operators abroad. So it was and, the most important job I had. Um, but I would, would note, and I, I go into this in the book in a way, it's a lot more fun when you're out in the field and you're running the operations and you're, and from yeah. a, a fun point of view. Yeah, I but can when see you're that. up on the uh, on what we call the seventh floor, uh, actually we interviewed, I think seventy people. Actually, it's close to eighty, but some can't be in the book because their relatives are still working at the CIA and so on. But the inter- we we interviewed my uh, staff chief at the time, and she said, you know, I would arrive early in the morning before Jack would get there. You know, I I would be there by seven. And her job was to go through papers all day long, pulling out the papers that needed decisions. And she said she would leave at night and there'd still be a foot of paper and she'd go home. In other words, the job itself wasn't meeting, you know, it's not James Bond out having a martini at exactly. Casino Royale. No, you're at your desk making one decision after another. It's, it's fascinating. It's, you know, you feel very uh, responsible you're making an impact, but that's what you're doing. You're making decisions or you're meeting with somebody. You're meeting with the head of a foreign intelligence service. You're meeting down on the Hill with Congress, briefing them or going into the White House or State Department. So you're either in meetings or literally looking at one piece of paper and making a decision. And you have to make them quick. There's no time to you know, exactly. uh, go off and, and, and ponder great thoughts. So. It, it's fun, and fun isn't the right word for that, but I, it is, uh, 
Well, lots of it adrenaline. It's the most challenging. It's the most significant job and probably the one that I'll remember most. The most yeah. fun was running the Afghan program. And well, now, being in Chile on the ground when the government was overthrown and there was riots and all that. And how long were you in the field before you actually were up there on the, the ivory tower there? Well, what, what the normal run is is about five, five years abroad. So I would go out for you know, a three-year assignment, maybe a two, and then another three, another two. So I spent half the time in Washington, half abroad. I lived in seven foreign countries. And I spent uh, 32 years at the agency, so, you know, 16 of it was abroad and 16 in Washington, you know, about evenly divided. They don't want you to go native, you know, they want you to get back and make sure you understand the rules and regulations better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's a, yeah. Good, it's, it's a good principle. And, and you had your family with you most of this time? I was very lucky. I mean, I, I, when I say I didn't know a great deal about the CIA, I'm overestimating how much I knew. Um, but... I ended up in Latin America, and it was the ideal choice because uh, the book is about the action part, and half mm-hmm. of my career was involved in action, and I'm able to write about it because so much of it later became public. But they wanted me in the action side down in Chile, and uh, at that time we had Vietnam on one end of the world. The other most important issue was uh, was Chile, and there was a concern it was going to go um, into the to the Cuban orbit, so to speak. But the beautiful thing about Latin America is it's family-friendly. In other words, people that are signed up to Latin America are able to bring their families with them. In the Middle East or in some of the trouble spots, your family is in the neighboring country that you, know, you might be in Rome and be working in, uh, in, uh, in Cairo. So uh, I was very lucky that the early part of my career when my family was young, I was able to take them with me in, mm-hmm. in Latin America. And I try to weave into the book. Uh, I, I do want people to realize that, you know, this is. It, yes, there is an adventure and, and some some glamour with it, but you also have families. You know, we're right. people that cut grass and go to ShopRite with coupons, and you know, we we really are uh, regular people. But I work in, you know, how do you tell your children that you actually are a spy and not a uh, a diplomat, you know, there, yeah. there are these family moments or taking Italian with my wife and having the temerity that suggested maybe she didn't use the subjunctive and next thing she rolls down the window and the book goes out on Route 95. So, uh-huh. you know, that's not a spy story, but it's a human story. And it's, it's absolutely the business is made up of people, you know, like your neighbors, you know. So, and I wanted to get that across, uh, you know, because... Uh, and- so, which brings a question, Jack. Did, yeah. did your wife know you were in the CIA? You're allowed to tell your uh, your spouse and uh, your parents. And, and that's you it. Know, every once in a while, they, they would say to you, well, did you tell anyone else? And I could honestly say no. They didn't ask me, did my father tell anybody? Yeah. <laughs> so I said, I said, listen, Dad, this is really secret. You can't tell. Oh, I got it, Jack. I got it. And then I went to our next family <laughs> um, wedding and dancing with one of, one of my aunts. And she said, Jack, where's your gun? <laughs> you know he just told everybody. So, But that's the, the problem. Was, is, is, yeah. It's one thing in the United he... States. It's another if it it's talked about uh, abroad. And your children, <laughs> I thought I had a perfect system. I have six children, so I had more than a little experience here. I should write a book on how to tell your children you're a spy. And I had a system where 
I would wait until they were in their early teens, 13, 14, and I would wait until I was back in the United States. And I would sort of lock them in the car. Once during the summer, they would have to take a trip with me down the shore. It would happen serendipitously. And I'd wait till I crossed the Delaware Memorial Bridge, and I'd break the news to them. So the first two said, oh, that's cool. Why don't you turn up the radio? <laughs> you know, they weren't all that enthused. So I was getting overly confident. And then I caught my 16-year-old. And by 16, you're now a different type of person. You know, you're into, you know, whatever they're teaching in history these days. So I said, listen, Amy, I want to tell you that, you know, I know you think I'm a diplomat, but I've been, you know, I'm, a, uh, I'm in charge of the uh, CIA's operations or whatever country. And the response was, she yelled out at the top of her voice, my father, the assassin. Oh, no. So the reason I did it on the bridge is because, you know, even kids don't jump out of cars on bridges at 60 miles an hour. And they had to stay in the car for another hour, which gave me a chance to explain, look, I'm not really an assassin. You know, I'm, a, I'm a government person, and you know, I'm working to behest the United States government and, and so on. And it takes you about an hour. So by the time we got to the shore, she, all she wanted to figure out is when, uh, when could she go to the boardwalk. But yeah. there was a moment there where... I was totally thrown off my game, so to speak. I tell the story because, again, you know, people don't think of of, of operators having to deal with children. And, uh, and exactly, and part and, of the life. Es- and essentially, you're living a secret life your entire career, for the most part. I I actually ran into a fellow. I don't think there were many of them who didn't tell his wife how that how that plays out. I have no idea. And I didn't want to press the issue either. He either didn't think he was going to hold on to her too long, or he didn't trust her one or the other. Yeah. yeah. But I, uh, everyone yeah. of my generation, your your immediate family, was brought into it, and I was protected by the embassy. There's, you know, embassies around the world know people in there know because you know they know where your your husbands and wives know where you're located and so on. And I've never I've never seen an indiscretion in my personal experience where someone went home and told their kids that, oh, you know, Amy or Joe's father is really, he's not a diplomat, he's a, he's a spy. So uh, you have to be protected like that, and you count on but, people's professionalism. Yeah, interesting. And, and who were the directors of CIA during the time you were there? Well, as you said, it started, you know, it, it started with uh, uh, Dick Helms, who was the very first director, and I uh-huh. met him at, a couple times. When you're junior, you don't meet the people at the top. But years later, you know, uh, I had dinner with him a couple times, and he's, he's sort of a, he is a historical figure because he was um, he was uh, wrapped up in the uh, actually was in the Chile matter, and uh, he was being briefed on the Hill, and he refused or didn't tell the committee at that time. Uh, that we had a program going and end up being uh, uh, convicted of perjury and then pardoned, I think. Was the, mm. Yeah. What, but it later what, became what, ambassador to Iran. And the perjury thing, I can't remember now, what, what was that scandal? Well, what, what happened in, uh, in, in Chile was, uh, and I think this is, again, I, I, I want to check my facts on it, but basically he was being, uh, he was testifying about what our role was, and uh, it was an open hearing, and you can in a private hearing. It you know, you, you, that's where these things should be discussed. And uh-huh. uh, I guess he inaccurately 
uh, said that you know we weren't involved in activities that later became part of the church commission and all that. If I have my sequence right here, yeah, okay. Well, but he we, became you know, the man. He, he wrote a book called "The Man Who Kept the Secrets." In other words, he didn't. Yeah, you know he he was protecting the source. It's a very delicate balance between um, protecting sources and your responsibilities to brief the Congress. And I. I frankly am a strong believer that you brief the Congress uh, and the committees, the intelligence committees. You can't uh-huh. brief the whole Congress, yeah. And um, because there, that's the that is a vetting system of the um, what I call the vetting system of the validity. It's the validity of your operational activity. In other words, if the, you can't get it through Congress, that means the Congressmen don't think they can sell it to their constituency. That's your real check and balance on mm-hmm. on on action programs. Francis, well, one thing I wanted to mention that someone asked me what's the most misunderstood thing about CIA, and I think it's this point that all action programs, as opposed to espionage, and that's now involved in this German case, the President of the United States signs the authority. I know of a single case where the President of the United States, either during my 32 years or the years that preceded, and I believe today, that isn't signed by the President of the United States. So often CIA is viewed as carrying out some activities. And what a lot of people don't realize is those activities are at the, the, the behest of the President of the United States. And it's the only way they get done. Mm-hmm. And I, I wait for somebody to show me an example where that wasn't the case. And it's That's not well understood. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I, you know, the checks and balances you mentioned with Congress, you know, like probably any organization, you, you, got, you probably get tunnel vision about your mission to a degree. Well, I think that's right, and I think that's the danger. If you, you know, if you want to do things efficiently, you don't brief anybody. You know, mm-hmm. you the, the president and a small group at CIA go off and do their thing. That is bad. That is almost always going to end up in a scandal and a flap. You have to air it, and you have to air it with couple with other. There's a committee now that works on it. You have to have other agencies, Justice Department and State Defense Department, because you might be stepping into territory that's you know either covered or prohibited or whatever. And you have to brief Congress um, because it's this is the only way you can stand before the American people and say, "Look, I'm I'm doing what your representatives want." So mm-hmm. uh, if if you're just inside the building out in Langley and don't get out there and mix it up, you think more about expediency, and mm-hmm. that is a dangerous path. And I go through the book on what makes for good covert action, what makes for bad covert action, and one of the Key ingredients for good covert action, you have to have enough support, bipartisan support, and, and I know that's a hard thing to arrive at today, but yeah. if you can't, it, it, is going to, it is going to end up in a disaster. Okay. When, now, back to talking about Latin America. You were the Latin American di- Division Chief. Were you also, at the time, head of the Counter-Narcotic Center? Was that... There are two separate jobs. The, okay. I had the I was responsible for the Counter Narcotics Center, which was fascinating because it was the first time I saw the integration of analysis and operations and technology and people from around the community all in you know one unit. And that was fascinating. But then I ran Latin America, so I was a natural transition, if you will. Oh, from and the, looking at Latin America, yeah. the biggest account was the narcotics and. I go into the fact that during that time frame, uh, uh, the folks in Colombia uh, ran down uh, Pablo Escobar, helped helped uh, end his illustrious career as the top 
narcotics trafficker in the world at one point. I, I and I guess interesting, Jack. I didn't realize, and this and this is ignorance on my part, that the CIA was so involved in the uh, counter narcotics part of things. I, what happened is, I think it became one. Of, it's hard to imagine, but it became uh, during the. Uh, Reagan administration, one of the top three priorities in the country. You have to think back to then. The there war was a on great drugs. Deal of concern, war on drugs, but it was in our neighborhoods. And sadly, today I'm, I'm concerned that I, I noticed a spike in uh, heroin, and also uh, pills have sort of replaced some of the other uh, other cocaine and, uh, and and heroin. I mean, there's still large amounts sold, so it was very high. So when mm-hmm. it gets that high on the list, then everybody gets involved, the Defense Department and so on. Mm-hmm. But running after narcotics traffickers, when you step back from it, you say, well, what we really need is intelligence. We need to know where they are, who they are, and what their connections are. Mm-hmm. And one of CIA's big contributions back in those days, you know, today we take for granted how we link information together in an investigative world. Uh, but back then to be able to link all the different phone calls and the different mm. people that were in that network and wrap them up uh, and being able to do it not just in one country but multiple countries, uh, it requires a level of uh, investigative skill that uh, uh, that was not available to the Colombians yeah. and the Peruvians. Well, <laughs> you know, it's hard to imagine looking through the 2014 lens when we didn't have cell phones, when we didn't have computers, when we couldn't link things just by sitting at our desk. I mean, we can't even imagine that world any longer. Francie, I could have controlled the world if I had the social media capabilities and no one else had it back in, yeah. the, in the 80s. I had to work and have people out with science down with the Russians in Afghanistan. Today, I could sit at my desk and probably create a revolution. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it really is amazing. We're so used to it. We don't even think that there was another world pre- previous to this one. So communications were so, I mean, just, when I first started, I mean, you only could type. I mean, you could only send a message back of, I think it was like 100 words, you know, because they didn't <laughs> have the bandwidth. And I, started, I basically was tweeting before it became popular because you cut out all the unnecessary words, you know. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we would send send back war tomorrow. You wouldn't say, it's my understanding that there'll be a war, it says war tomorrow. So you became very, uh, very condensed in, in your and, language. And what, but then in the 70s, they went to bandwidth, and then people were writing 20-page cables, single-spaced on both sides, and burying in the, in the middle of it that they drove the office car into the river, assuming nobody would read that far. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you were sending the, the short, these short cryptic messages, was that teletype? What was that? That, that was cable. It was uh, cable. Uh, but what they were also doing at the same time, and this, is, this will blow your mind, make, make me uh, feel like I'm back in the uh, <laughs> prehistoric man period, but they, you could write long, thinkful pieces, let's say a four-page thought piece. You'd cut it in half. <laughs> And mail one half in the pouch uh, one week, and then you'd mail the second half the following week, and they'd scotch tape it. And you had uh, words that instead of saying America, you would have uh, KU tree, you know, some sort of cryptic thing. So uh-huh. you'd have these black things, so somebody would have to put it back together. 
that's the speed at which the world was moving in, 19, in the 1960s. Wow. And but in the 70s began the revolution of communications. Those dispatches are now collector's items inside CIA. But that's how people communicated. And the people in the field had so much more responsibility because there, wasn't, there was no way to micromanage our embassies and our field stations around the world. So, you know, you became chief of station. You know, you, you became the captain. In other words, at like boated sea. In other words, you need to make the decisions. And that's what an ambassador is. Make a decision and then maybe a month later the cable would come back that Tripoli had been overthrown or whatever. So uh, I think it is a really good point of, that you're making about getting perception on time and communication and how, it, how it's changing our world. It's, it really is amazing. And Jack, this is a good time for us to take a break. I am so delighted to have Jack Devine, the author of Good Hunting and former CIA agent extraordinaire. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Jack Devine, was with the CIA and was actually responsible for over thousands of CIA employees that were involved in sensitive operations, I believe in about seven countries, but at least across the world. Um, So, Jack, you, uh, after you were in the Latin American division, then was then when you were assigned to the Afghan task force? No, actually, um, as luck would have it, I thought, well, you know, Maybe a change of pace, and so did some of my uh, 
um, supervisors thought, well, you know, he's been doing Latin America. Why don't we put him over in the Middle East? So uh, they said, well, how would you like the Iran branch in 1985? And I thought, well, now that'd be exciting. That'd be totally different. Now, for those who young or younger audience, if you will, 1985 was the year that the Iran-Contra scandal got started yes. that almost brought down the Reagan administration. And as a backdrop on that, um, there was a decision made to trade missiles for hostages with the uh, Iranians, and it just became a huge uh, problem. And I was involved in it, and I learned a lot of lot of lessons about what's not good covert action. And uh, the other thing I learned is uh, George Shultz, a former Secretary of State, once said, no bad idea dies in Washington. And as a young man, I thought, oh, this is going to die of its own weight. It's such a bad idea. It's not going to go anywhere. Well, I lived to, uh, to understand that that isn't true, and Schultz had more than a little truth in his statement. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that was, a, that was a bad time in this country with all that was going on with the Iran contract. Well, what happened in that case, it wasn't... What's interesting, it wasn't good policy to make the weapons uh, trading for the hostages, and they were using. Uh, it started as a White House uh, uh, consultant brought this matter uh, into the White House, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you know, it was against the existing longstanding policy. Okay. But they were using a middleman that we in the Iran branch knew very, very well was a fabricator, a liar. Uh, uh, an Iranian arms merchant, and hmm. uh, you know, I actually polygraphed them in Washington in a hotel, and you know, met with Director Casey, saying, "Look, you know, this, this guy, he gets his name. I'm not even sure he got his name right." Uh, but where it really got off the track was we were the Iranians were paying for these missiles, and they were just for argument's sake, they were paying a million. They were supposed to pay a million dollars, but they were actually paying two million. And the second million was going to the Central American Contra program. And why that's important is that was illegal. In other words, trading missiles for hostages is not good policy, and particularly if the American people have not been advised that that's you know that's that's part of the policy. Mm-hmm. There was a Bolin amendment that said any no U.S. funds could be diverted to the Central America program. So they clandestinely uh, had the money diverted, which I knew nothing about, and I think uh, 99.9% of people in CIA didn't know about it. And that became, it was breaking that law that really put the White House in a vice. And and I think there were were talking before you get uh, tunnel vision and you think that it's very important to help the Contras down there, but it can't get in the way of American law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I learned some lessons, and I said I, um, I fortunately didn't get involved in the part that was uh, the illegal part, so I didn't, you know, end up with an indictment. But some of my friends did. Interesting, interesting. So then, how did you? So you actually went to Iran as a as a quote diplomat? No, uh, no. To Iran? Yeah, to Iran. You didn't go to Iran. No, that's a. Uh, remember back then we had the hostages. We haven't had uh, we haven't had a presence there. It's handled now. Oh, okay. Through I think it's a Swiss, if I remember. So no one could go in there. There's a 
a, a good movie, fun movie, uh, Argo, where they had to get a few, um, they got a few of our, a few of the uh, people out, and how they did that was quite fascinating. But that's been what we would call a denied area. It's a place we can't mm. operate. Uh, North Korea would be a denied area. Right. Uh, just very hard to operate in those places. So did you? So then, did you go to Afghanistan? No. What happened then is uh, because well, be, because of the position I took that Iran was the Iran Contra affair wasn't such a good idea. Um, I was asked if I would take over the responsibility for the Afghan program and organize the war effort in uh, against the uh, the Muj- uh, uh, against the Russians. Now, mm-hmm. it had been going on for a few years, and what people didn't realize that in 1985, uh, the White House and others were saying, well, how long are we going to go on? This doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And, right. But what's, the, what's interesting about the program, and I, I used to travel with Charlie. I was going to say run around with Charlie Wilson, but that's not the right expression with Charlie. <laughs> uh, but I traveled with Charlie, and you know, Charlie became known as Charlie Wilson's War, which you know, it's, that's not exactly accurate, but and we could talk about that. But what you had to was fascinating. You had the President of the United States, the Republican, and uh, Ronald Reagan, and you had Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House, Democrat from uh, uh, from from Texas, and you had bipartisan belief that we were going to drive those Russians out. And they agreed back then that in 1980 we were going to make one really big push to get the Russians out of Afghanistan. So what what that meant in real terms is they tripled the budget. They tripled the size of the agency uh, commitment to it. And we created a large office, which I was in charge of, to buy the weapons, increase the weapon sales. And above all, uh, during my time, was the introduction of the famous Stinger missile. And hmm. today, while people are well aware of it, back then it was just coming off the assembly line, and our troops hadn't even uh, uh, been given the first batch. And that changed the course of the war, because the Russians had these, uh, something they, they call the, uh, the uh, hind helicopter, which is like our, uh, our Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't move any of the equipment with those mules. Those mules were being slaughtered and people along, oh, wow. with it along the border. And we couldn't find anything that would knock down the helicopter. And then, lo and behold, we were given a demonstration of the Stinger, a video of a mock shoot-down in the White House, and decided that this was the answer to our prayers. And it went in in September of 86, as I recall, and the first three shots, well, actually, three of the first four knocked down helicopters. The first shot bounced along the ground, and the chief out there said, oh, the line sent us another piece of, I won't use the expression, but let's say <laughs> inferior equipment. Right. Uh, but the next three hit their target. And what was interest, was most important, and people get confused, it's not that they shot down a lot of uh, helicopters. They did shoot down more than a few. But they, the Russians then started flying way above the, the range that they could have any effectiveness. And then... They just saw this three, three-fold increase of weapons and material, and they just lost heart, and they yeah. pulled out of of uh, out of Afghanistan. And I think that, along with the economic uh, 
crumbling in the Soviet Union and Reagan's pushing up of the defense budget, I think led to the, the fall of the Soviet Empire. And I think part of it was the, the, the morale problems that the Defense Department, Russians of Defense Department experienced as a result of its, uh, its retreat from, uh, from Afghanistan. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. That's it's fascinating to see uh, to hear your perspective on what was going on at the time. Since I like many of our listeners lived through all that time and got only got the news version, so it's really interesting. You know, I'm looking at the, the table of contents of your book, and let's mention your book again, Jack. It's called Good Hunting, and it's you can get it on Amazon and probably all the major bookstores. Correct. Yes, Barnes and Noble's carrying it for sure. Barnes and Noble. Okay, and, and I'm looking Amazon at some of these titles. Has huh? been very, uh, very supportive. Oh, great! I'm looking at some of these titles, and they're just hysterical. So the one we have to talk about this one: Do I lie to the Pope or break cover? <laughs> well, uh, to put some context around it, I was the chief uh, in Rome in 1988 to 90, and uh, you know. I thought any good CIA station chief should meet the Pope. I mean, you know, how can you be out there? So a friend of mine was a cardinal from Philadelphia. I didn't want to ask him because I'm sure everybody put the strong arm on to meet the Pope. But I said, oh, you know, my birthday's coming up. And I didn't say anything. And he sat silent. And I said, oh, our wedding anniversary. So, you know what you should do? You should meet the Pope. So I thought, that's a great idea, John. So he set it up where you have a, a morning mass and, they have about 20 people, so you actually, the Pope says the Mass for 20 people. And I, uh, my youngest son was living with us in Rome. All the others were uh, in college and other things in the States. And uh, we brought him along. And after the Mass, you have a, circ- a semicircle, and he, this was John Paul, and he uh, walked around, and it was fascinating to see him go from Spanish to Polish. And he got to me, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, what do you do for a living? Now, that was the last question I expected the Pope. And, you know, you have that instantaneous, you know, if I tell him I work at CIA, I've just broken my cover, you know, and I'm going to have a, you know, time at the the next polygraph. But, you know, I don't want to burn in hell, so I don't want to tell him, I don't want to lie to the Pope. But, you know, fortunately, your guardian angel leaped in and said, you know, tell him you work at the American Embassy. (laughs) So I did. It's not a lie. It's not exactly the whole story, nothing about the story. But I think that gets me... um, uh, at least uh, no lower than purgatory. Yeah, so, you're good. But, that you know, like I did that. have my purgatory in uh, in Rome because one of the things that go into the book, which is not the action part, it's the betrayal, uh, espionage, counterintelligence part. And uh, I had in the office at that time uh, working for me uh, Rick Ames, who was the um, American CIA official who right. in the uh, the 80s and early 90s worked for the Soviet KGB and uh, and gave them the names of our 11 best agents working in Russia mm-hmm. and they were all executed so on the one hand I can you know worry about my cover situation but uh, I had a lot of dealings with Mr. Ames and go into it in the book and, and several what, points was Ames reporting to you at the time yeah, he was working for me. He was uh, he was a failed officer in a lot of ways, but he spoke Russian, and uh, so they, he was considered uh, useful. 
and he had had a he had a drinking problem and was sent back to dry out. And then we have a good program with alcoholics uh, because you know it's it's important uh, that people you know remain in the institution and you work with them because uh, everybody in CIA really knows too much to just be uh, cut loose. So mm-hmm. anyway, he was sent back, and uh, his wife was pregnant, and so they decided that they would let him stay. I forget six months, and I showed up and had about six months with him. But I knew him from uh, the earliest days. He he and I started training together. He we were in a uh, a pre training program, and he went in six months before me. But I went to his wedding. I knew him. Uh, you know, we had dinner when we first arrived, but. At one point, we were colleagues, and then I became the the boss in the office, and he was, you know, um, one of the case officers. Um, but he, at the end of the day, you know, he if you look at what happened with him, and this is true of many, many defectors, mm-hmm. and it may uh, apply in the mentality of Mr. Snowden not to throw oil in the fire here, but mm-hmm. he he thought he was smarter than everybody. He was very well read. Uh, he had a troubled family. Uh, he dropped out of school, then went back. Uh, and when he joined the agency, he was a diehard agency employee, and he believed counterintelligence was the, the you know, hunting for moles was the most important thing. How how ironic that is! Mm-hmm. But what happened? He was lazy, so he only wanted to do A, B, and C, and he didn't do D, E, and F. And if you're in any company any commercial company, any government company, your rate of growth is going to be greatly reduced if you are not, you know, if, if you're not pressing on all fronts. If you're not so engaged. What, happened, what yeah. happened to him was he was being passed by by other people, but he thought he was smarter and better. And But he never looked at himself and said, yeah, but I don't like working hard or I don't like working in, mm. in all the areas. So what happens, and this is what makes people betray their institutions, and it's betrayal in, in life as well. It's the resentment that builds in because you weren't appreciated and weren't recognized and weren't mm-hmm. understood enough. And the bigger your ego is, the more that uh, makes you a prime target for recruitment. And he would have been an ideal person if the Russians knew to go after him. Uh, they didn't have to go after him because he he had a legitimate reason because he had uh, contact with the Russians to walk into the Russian embassy, and he volunteered. He volunteered his services to him. Wow, and and I don't remember now, Jack. How was he caught? Well, we knew uh, they they knew they were narrowing it down. They were we knew we had a problem, and it took years to narrow it down. And then they got a really good tip. And it helped narrow it down even more. But just because you know someone's a spy, in the United States, thank God, we have laws. You have to prove it. So we knew it, but we couldn't prove it. So the FBI put, you know, this will appeal to a lot of our office. They had the place entirely wired with, you know, it's a computer, a video in every room. They bought the house or rented the house across the street. They collected all of his trash. You know, they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And because he was lazy, he had instructions, handwritten instructions, <laughs> on where to meet uh, out in suburban Maryland to pick up uh, a money drop. And uh, he had it, and he rolled it up, 
instead of eating it or burning it, he threw it in the trash. He's just lazy. So he put it in the trash. And, of course, that made the FBI's day when they opened the trash. And there it was, his For compromising sure. instructions. And that's what hung up. Yeah. And so how was he transmitting the secrets? Well, um, I mean, literally, um, when you know, you're abroad, we're not, no one's following your, your officers around. So he could walk out of an embassy carry documents with them, you know, copy yeah. them and document. So he was he was unloading in bulk. Uh, now, he didn't know every... He, the, one of his great... Uh, uh, one of the bad things that happened in life, because of his Russian skill, when he was in Washington, he was in the unit... He was in the unit that was actually running the agents in Russia. So he had their name. Mm, you don't uh-huh. need to know anything more than their names. And... So you can have a sheet of paper with 11 names on it. You've, you've basically destroyed uh, the agent, the CIA's Soviet program for, for 10 years. So he knew that, and then when he was abroad, he could fairly easily walk out with documents un, undetected. Probably not so easy to do today. You would hope not. <laughs> you You'd hope not. <laughs> uh, exactly. Let me put it this way. Anybody that's going to work in that special unit, would, I would have under the most rigorous uh, testing yeah. and vetting. Now, he was polygraphed a couple times, and there's some dispute on that. Uh-huh. But, I mean, he, you know, he's a psychopath, so, you know, yeah. good, stable people like you, Francie, are probably are big reactors on polygraphs. So I'm not going to press you here. Yeah. But if you're a psychopath... <laughs> You I don't know, have to you, take one today, do I? <laughs> I have a special monitor on, oh, on the line here. But uh, the uh, if you if you think you can beat beat the machine and you you know you don't have these uh, struggles, he was interviewed. One of the most fascinating interviews that I've ever seen, at least in this field. Uh, he only gave one. Uh, was only allowed to give one, I guess. And the interviewer woman had really just teased out the right question. It was Rick. Did you have any trouble sleeping when you know these eleven people were executed because of your information? And he pauses for a microsecond and he says, "You know, I thought I was going to have a problem, but no, I didn't." You know, wow. that's a psychopath, okay? So you, when you subject them to uh, polygraphs, you you know, it's a, he's a different, he's a more difficult subject to exactly. To so wow. even though he was being vetted because he was in that unit. Um, you know, uh, somehow, amazing. some way, he just wiggled his way through the system. So, you know, Graham Greene once used an expression, which I love, which is the human factor. You know, he used to be in the British intelligence service. And the human factor is you know, all your planning, all your preparation, but human beings, things go wrong. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, all many people in our audience make meetings and they're clandestine and so on. You pick the best spots and so on. And after you've done that, just circumstances, your neighbor, even though it's all the way across town, just happens to walk into that meeting right. site when you're meeting someone. In other words, you've done everything you can or you think you have, and there's that human, that human, that human error. So, you know, the huh. car breaks down and the police come up. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, that's why it's, uh, you know, it's a human business. It has flaws. In it. So you try and bring technology so, and, and Rick Ames is a classic example of how bad things can go. That's fascinating. So, uh, Jack, we only we have a few minutes left, but there was another um, 
another title that you had in your book here that says, Jack, this changes it all, doesn't it? Now, that and what was, was that about? That was a discussion I had with, uh, with Bill Casey. And, you know, we were talking a little a few minutes ago when those, the Stinger shot down those three helicopters. Uh-huh. It's actually very hard with uh, satellites to even find these things on the, the mountainous areas of Afghanistan. But we had the coordinates. So the next, within hours, I had the actual pictures. And uh, I went up to see Casey. I asked for a special meeting, and they interrupted him. And uh, I went in, and I put the pictures on the table. And, uh, you know, he got right away that it wasn't that, you know, the three helicopters were shot down. It's What did that mean? And that meant that, you know, this is going to break the back of the Russians. We've been Mm -hmm. doing tit for tat for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a chessboard, and now this is checkmate. So it it was that big of a moment. And And, and maybe this is an inappropriate question, but uh, I'll throw it out there anyway. And how do you think that impacts what uh, Putin is doing today in Russia? Well... You know, one of the things to try, you try and do when you're, when you're publishing a book is when it goes to the printer, you're dead. In other words, you, you might be able to take a word out and you have to put another word back in. Uh-huh. But because I found the situation in Ukraine so significant, I actually stopped the printer before he hit the go button and took two paragraphs out. Did and you? one says, basically, that Putin... You know, as you watch this, you're going to see a master chess player do covert action. So he's doing overt things, but he's doing below the radar. They're not Russians. You know, they just have Russian names and Russian passports. You know, mm-hmm. uh, plausible denial. Plausible denial doesn't mean uh, believable denial. So he's he's buying his agents. He's got more agents than you know you can, they used to have in Vienna during the Cold War. I mean, he's got agents. He's buying. Resources. He's trying to distort the, the 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 message. I mean, he's running a, a very effective game, and then he's using paramilitary things. So it's all the things that are in covert action programs. The second paragraph, uh, and this is the theme of the book in many ways, as we pull back around the world with our boots on the ground, so to speak, it's going to be even more important that we use the CIA and, in some cases, special forces under CIA cover, but. We need to be out there in the propaganda, political, economic, you know, along with the overt side, which is diplomacy and financial aid. But we need to be in the covert games, and we need to be it in, and we need to be there in Ukraine. And I would say it's true in Syria, it's true in Iraq, and it's in Afghanistan. And that is, uh, and I support our uh, pulling back in these places. But you can't come all the way back home and not keep something at play protecting our interests. And that should be what it has always been, the CIA, as I said, along with uh, young troops of uh, special training from the military that are assigned to CIA. So um, I, I think it's a, a tremendously appropriate uh, comment today. And today's press is all about, you know, uh, Putin reopening an intelligence base right. in, in right. Cuba. This is you know, uh, I know this world. <laughs> I know this yeah, world. exactly. So on the left side of my head, I said, oh, isn't it interesting to be back in the Cold War? The other said, oh, my God, not again. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> well, we are, Jack, we're at the end of our hour. This has been delightful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, 
If you want to reach Jack, he's with the Arkin Group in New York City. I'll leave it at that. You can Google Google Jack Devine, D-E-V-I-N-E, at the Arkin Group, A-R-K-I-N. And please get a copy of Good Hunting. It's fascinating reading. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, and it gives you a bird's-eye view of what really does go on in this world. Thanks to PI Magazine, our loyal sponsor, and tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thank Thank you so much. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.